Welcome to the Plenteous Redemption Podcast, where the cross and the culture are on a collision course for discussion. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require signs, the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Under the Jews a stumbling block, under the Greeks foolishness, but under them which are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, here's your host, Thomas Irvin. Everybody get some rest last night? Let your brain cool off a little bit? Well, we're here again, and we're going to pick up where we left off last night. We finished up, we're talking about the various editions of the Textus Receptus. And last night, we talked about Erasmus, who had how many editions? Five editions. So we went through his, to, and starting with this uh, first hour, we're going to pick up with Robert Stephanus. Um, Stephanus was a French printer, which is interesting. Um, he was a French printer and scholar who lived 1503 to 1559. So he was 1503 to 1559. So how, how old was he when... Erasmus printed his first edition. Uh, you, you failed math. <laughs> it was 13. <laughs> 1516 was Erasmus' first edition. Uh, Stephanus followed the family tradition. His father and his uncle were printers. Now, this time, this is a new industry. The print, the print, you know, the printer is becoming more available. And um, people are, are starting businesses printing. What made it so profitable, it, it, it both made it profitable and hindered you at the same time, is that you couldn't just go, you couldn't, people just couldn't, you know, run down to the print shop and print something. That wasn't available to you. You, you had to, it had to be commissioned by someone of high importance. And usually it was the head of your government, so the king, or the head of your religion, which was the Pope. And, and the king and the Pope could designate people under him who could also permit you to, to print. In fact, we'll learn a little bit about, I don't remember if I put it in my notes or not, but William Tyndale, when he wanted to get a commission to, to translate the Bible into English, he went to a, a high-level cardinal or bishop in the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, they told him no. Like, you know, they, they, they highly respected him, they loved his work, but... They felt like he was a wild card. And, and while this cardinal uh, uh, maybe agreed that 
that the Bible should be put into to the English language, the rest of the world wasn't, the rest of the Roman Catholic world wasn't quite ready for that yet. So they told him no. So he, had to, he literally had to leave England and go to Europe to, to print his, his New Testament. That's once, if the Pope said no and the king said no, there's nobody else to turn to. You can't just run down to a print shop and say, hey, I want to print this. It, it had to be commissioned. So that would help you because that meant when there were large numbers of, of documents that needed to be printed, you're the only person that people can come to. And if you get the permission, then you get to, you get to print it all. You, they literally would give the printer the copyright. They, they used copyright a little bit different in those days than they do today. You know, I can own the copyright and have somebody else print it. Well, in those days, the printer was given the copyright, and, and so he had the right and the permission, and he owned that document and was able to print it repeatedly. So it was a lucrative business for them to get into. Um, both his father and his uncle printed Bibles, which was interesting. Uh, that, that was a, apparently a major portion of the work that they did as printers. And uh, in 1523, he printed a Latin New Testament. Now, I don't know if this is a work of his own creation, but uh, it, it was notable in, in some of the books that I read that he printed it. Um, twice he published the entire Hebrew Bible. Now, Stephanus went on to print four editions of the Greek New Testament. And they were in 1546, 1549, 1550, and then his last one was 1551. So these are the years that he printed his first edition, then he did some edits. You know, each edition is an updated version of the previous, where they went back and checked some things and verified some things, and uh, there would always be printing errors, scribal errors, things of that sort that needed to be corrected, and and, uh, they'd go back and fix those things. His work, as you can imagine, angered the Roman Catholic Church. They began to persecute him, and this caused him to move from Paris to a very important place for the rest of the Bible, Geneva, Switzerland. Who was who the most notable person in Geneva, Switzerland? Anybody remember? This name is is historically associated with Geneva, Switzerland. When John Calvin broke away from the Catholic Church, he moved to Geneva and basically set up his own papal state. (laughs) He wanted to defy the Pope, so he became his own Pope, um, which makes a lot of sense. So, um, So now what, but part of what ended up happening is Guys like Robert Stephanus, and we're going to learn Theodore Beza, who was also from Geneva, Switzerland, found a safe haven there where they could work on the Bible. Now, you couldn't disagree with John Calvin, or he would burn you at the stake, <laughs> but, you could, but they had the freedom to, to work on the Bible. Um, in Geneva, he became, became, which means he wasn't, but he became a Protestant. Now, that's better than being a Catholic, but it's not quite 
a Bible-believing Christian, obviously, um, depending on the, the branch of Protestantism. His first two editions, 1546 and 1509, were pocket-sized. Now, not, they were pocket-sized. That doesn't mean, that means they were probably about this size, maybe a little bit smaller than this. That, that was considered pocket-sized in those days. Um, they hadn't quite got to, you know, the tiny little pocket-sized New Testaments that people have and carry around. They were printed at the expense of the King of France. So even though he's got the backing of the King of France, he still fell under persecution of the Catholic Church. Um, Catholicism just comes in and, and causes a lot of problems politically. They, they gain political control because their ambitions are not spiritual. Their ambitions are political. They want to be a world power like Russia. <laughs> How does that sound for a church? It's, it's no different than Islam. Islam wants to be a political power. They don't just want to be a religion. They want to dominate the, the politics. And that's not a Christian idea. Uh, and, but, but Catholicism does the same. They were a combination of texts compiled from Erasmus as well as the Complutensian polyglot. So his, his work was a combination of, of this and Erasmus. The Complutensian Polyglot was the first multilingual printed edition of the entire Bible. The project to produce the Bible was conceived, led, and financed by Cardinal Francisco Jimenez de Cisneros. <laughs> and it, it was done in 14, between 1436 and 1517. So what was it in competition with? Erasmus, Greek New Testament. Complutense refers to Complutum, the ancient Roman settlement at the site of Alcala de Henares. Everybody got that? Production of the Complutensian Polyglot Bible was part of the Cardinal's effort to revive learning and encourage the study of Holy Scriptures. This was a Roman Catholic venture to try and encourage people to study the Bible. And it was, it was more of, a, of an intellectual endeavor than a spiritual endeavor. He wasn't really trying to get people to love the, the Bible and, and to serve God. He just wanted them to take an interest in intellectual matters like languages and, and things of that sort. That was their ultimate goal. Uh, Cardinal Cisneros, I'll give you his last name. It's a good Spanish name. Now, remember, I told you last night that there was a competition, essentially, between Erasmus and um, th- th- these guys are trying, they're, they're rushing to get their Bible to the printer, and if they don't get it there before Erasmus, this, this might alter the entire world. We have no idea what the world would look like today if Erasmus did not get the Texas Receptus to the printer before these guys. Praise the Lord that he did. He was surrounded by experts and scholars specializing in a wide array of languages. It required more than 10 years to complete. The printing was done by Arnaldo Guelin de Brocar. Amen. A Frenchman who had worked in Pamplona. 
All right, in case you were wondering. In order to print the book, Brokar had to create a new and highly pre- uh, perfected ca- uh, characters for Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. When they used to print, they would literally have to, cr- they would have to carve the characters that they would use to make the letters that they would print, that they would press into the paper. And so in order to print this, he had to, he had to carve a whole new set of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew letters to, to, to make this work. His Greek characters are considered the most beautiful ever carved, in case you are wondering. I want to see those. The printing was done between 1514 and 1517, but it was not until 1520, after receiving authorization from Rome, that the book was distributed. So while they went ahead and printed it, they could not legally distribute it until 1520. Now, when did Erasmus print and distribute his first edition? 1516. And by the time these guys got theirs out, Erasmus' New Testament had already been established as, I mean, everybody was, everybody wanted Erasmus' New Testament. They didn't want these other, other books that were coming out. The Bible consists of separately bound volumes adding up to 1,500 pages. 600 copies were printed on paper and six on vellum. What is vellum? Yes, paper made from animal skin. Very good, yes, like leather, yeah. Volume 1 contains the text of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. All right, Volume 1. Everybody got it? Everybody ready? All right. Volume 1 contains the Pentateuch. The upper three quarters of the pages were divided in three columns that contain... Greek text on the left, the Latin in the middle, and the Hebrew text on the right. So if they had a, you know, if you were looking at one of their pages, uh, here you would have Greek, Latin, Hebrew, and they'd be divided like this. All right, so that, that would, that's what the page would look like. The, the Greek text would be here, the Hebrew text would be here, and the Hebrew would be on the right. The lower section of the page is divided into two columns. So they would actually cut it off here. And here you would have two columns instead of the three. And the lower section of the page is divided into two columns. The left contains Aramaic which, by the way, a portion of your Old Testament was written in Aramaic, a very small portion. Um, the majority was in Hebrew, but a very small portion was written in Aramaic. And uh, the lower page divided into the left was Aramaic of the Pentateuch, known as the Targum on Kelos. But all I'm interested in is that it was Aramaic. The other side was another Latin translation. So this one here is actually the Vulgate, the one on the top of the page. And this is someone's new Latin translation, or their very own Latin translation. Volumes 2 and 3 
contain the remainder of the Old Testament in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. So the, this setup was only for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. The rest of the Old Testament looks like this, the Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, until you get to the end of Malachi. Volume 4 contains the New Testament in Greek and Latin. And then the last part, and I don't know what, what they mean by the last part. I don't, I don't know. It didn't give a reference to, as to what section, but the last part of Volume 4 and Volume 5 consists of a Hebrew and Aramaic dictionary. And it also has Hebrew and Greek uh, uh, grammar. So it has a Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek dictionary, and it has Hebrew grammar. Everybody got that? And this is, this is you know, at the end of their New Testament. This is what they tacked on to the, to the end of the book. The Greek portion of the Old Testament in the Complutensian polyglot is made up of the Septuagint. Yes. So where would you get where would you find a Greek Old Testament? When was the Bible ever translated into Greek? Hmm? Old Testament. Where would you where where could you possibly come up with a Greek Old Testament? Hmm? So there there was not one. It doesn't exist. But we're gonna we're gonna explain why that is right now. So you have this Old Testament, which is the Septuagint. All right, also known as the LXX. The Septuagint is one of the greatest legends to ever deceive scholars. <laughs> So, that's not a great start. <laughs> according to legend, all right, now, if you're telling a story that, and you start out with, according to legend, what kind of story are you telling? <laughs> it's a fairy tale. <laughs> it's not true. It's fake. This is, this is how movies start. According to legend... <laughs> It's how children's books start. So, according to legend, we talked a little bit about it last night, 72 Jewish scholars. 72. Now, we also talked about, what does LXX mean? 70. So, where'd the other two go? Yeah, somewhere. Somebody didn't keep their story together. 72 Jewish scholars. All right, so this fairy tale begins with this idea. All right, now, now I want you to listen to this. This is, we'll piece all this together, so just listen. If you, need, if you have questions, stop me and I'll, I'll answer them. But according to legend, 72 Jewish scholars asked by Ptolemy II Philadelphus, who was a, so it's 
Ptolemy, who was the Greek pharaoh of Egypt. He apparently asked that he asked 72 Jewish scholars to translate the Torah from Hebrew to Greek. The plan was to include it in the library at Alexandria. We've talked a lot about we've talked a little bit about that library. Um, this narrative is found in what is often called the letter of Aristeas. This was an actual uh, a letter. Somebody wrote a letter. He wrote Aristeas wrote a letter to to his brother Philocrates. Now, you got to be learning some great names here for your future children. All right, Philocrates, 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 however you want to say it, I'll leave that to you. So the plan was to include this in the library at Alexandria. The narrative that of, of all this information is apparently found in the letter of Aristeas to his brother Philocrates and is repeated by somebody you should know. Philo of Alexandria. This is the culprit. This is the magician. This is the man that put the legend together. In the Bible, we call him a liar. And all liars shall have their place in the lake that, uh, that burneth with fire and brimstone. So um, I hope it was worth it. Apparently, it was repeated by Philo... Josephus, and later by Augustine of Hippo. These men repeated this legend. They they didn't necessarily verify it was true. They just repeated it. But all sources point back to Philo as being the one who got this ball rolling in the first place, who told people this was going to happen. Apparently, King Ptolemy gathered 72 elders. He placed them in 72 chambers. You got 72 men, they need 72 rooms, right? (laughs) Each of them in a separate one without revealing to them why they were summoned. So he told 72 Jewish scholars to come. He made 72 chambers for them to stay, and he didn't tell any of them why they were there. All right? I mean, this this would make a neat movie. This would be interesting. He entered each one's room and said, write for me the Torah. Which is weird. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, don't you? <laughs> like, you could, you got money. You could just go buy a copy that already exists. But okay, I'll write it for you. God put it in the heart of each one to translate identically as all the others did. And you see how good this movie is getting. So the king of Egypt brings seventy-two Jewish scholars. Gives them 72 rooms to stay in. Tells them, I want you to translate the Torah. And it just so happens that all 72 translated the Torah the exact same way. From Hebrew to Greek. Not one of them had any difference or variance whatsoever. They were all exactly, perfectly the same. It sounds like a Roman Catholic story. (laughs) They make up these stupidest stories you could imagine. So Philo about, you know, so I'll tell you another one that this is, this will help your brain cool off for a minute. So when I lived in Egypt, um, 
there's a church there called Church of the Cave or Church in the Cave, something like that. It's a Roman Catholic church inside of a cave. And so when you go there to visit the church and you hear the story about how this came to, to be, what they tell you, and I forget the man's name, but there was a man who, who lived, you know, at this time, he was just a, I believe he was a, a he, he repaired shoes. And uh, during this time, Muhammad, you know, his people had, the, the Arabs had invaded Egypt and, and, and around Cairo, you had, you had Arabs or Muslims Jews and Christians living in separate spaces, but the, the, the Muslims were, had taken control of the place. And they would kill you if you didn't do what they said. They did kill. They killed thousands and thousands of Egyptians and, and, and raped and pillaged and did all sorts of horrible things. So now today, Egypt is Islamic, primarily, because they didn't have much of a choice. They couldn't fight them off, so they, they died and, and did what they said. So anyways, the, the Jews were upset with the Christians so the Jews went to the Muslims and said, do you know that their book says if they have enough faith, they can move a mountain? Now, if they can't demonstrate that they can do that, then you should kill them. You should remove them from this land. So the Muslims went to the Christians and said, we read in your Bible that it says that you can move a mountain if you have enough faith. You need to show us that you can do that. And they're all scared. They don't know what to do. And so they, they tell the Muslims, would you, would you just give us you know, seven days, 10 days, or, you know, so, so, much, so much time, and then come back. And, and if our God will help us do it, then great. If not, then I kill us all. <laughs> so so, so they're, they're terrified on what to do. So they did what any good group of Roman Catholics would do. They prayed to Mary. Now, these are actually Coptic, but it's, it's, the, same, it's, it's the same banner. It's all Orthodox. It's, it's you know, Roman Orthodox uh, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, it's all the same garbage. And so they prayed to Mary, because who else would you pray to when you're in trouble other than Mary, who is a sinner saved by grace, who needed the same help you need, but somehow she's supposed to help them. And so Mary, Mary responded, she was nice enough to tell them to go get this, this, this shoe repairman. Now this man who repairs shoes, he is famous for his faith. And the, re- the reason they know he has great faith is because one time he was helping a lady with new shoes and he looked at her, her leg and he was so convicted by it that he went and plucked his own eyes out. That's how much faith he has. So because of that, he's known as a man of, of great faith. He didn't have enough faith to keep his eyes off the woman's leg. <laughs> But he apparently had enough faith to pluck his own eyes out after looking at the woman and burning her, the image of her leg into his head. <laughs> Is he going to pluck his brain out next when he thinks about it? I mean, I, I don't understand how that works. So they, they call this guy and they tell him the problem. And he says, oh, an, you know, an angel came to me and told me I will be able to move that mountain. So the, the Mohammedans come back, the Muslims come back and they say, you better demonstrate to us you can move this mountain. So he told the mountain to move. And a huge chunk of it ripped out of the side. And now there's a church inside the cave that was left from what he did. That's Philo. That's Roman Catholicism. That's Ptolemy bringing 72 Jewish scholars to his house and giving them 72 chambers. And they all translate. And these same people. So they they also teach that... uh, 
they had this, this uh, Coptic priest or pope or whatever. They have their own pope. They don't follow the Catholic pope. They have their own pope. And, and they were taking a trip up a mountain one day, and they get to the bottom of the mountain, and there's an old man there, and, and there's, there's, I think there's like 12 of them. And, they, and, and the old man asked each one of them individually, would you carry me to the top of the mountain? I need to go to the top of the mountain, and I can't, I can't go by myself. And they all said, no, we have to be at the top of this mountain. We're supposed to meet Jesus on top of this mountain, so we have to go. And so they all told the old man no and left him. Well, the old man apparently was Jesus. So he, you know, they all felt bad because it was actually Jesus asking them to carry them to the top of the mountain. But Jesus disguised himself. And so it was this big lesson about helping people who need help. And, and it's, just, it's just retarded. It makes no sense. And... and they, they, they teach these things as though it really happened. And these are the same people. I, you know, I went to one of their monasteries, and they have a, a tomb with their dead pope in it. I mean, a huge tomb, this high, all marble. And people are laying on the tomb crying, begging this dead pope to bless them. That, and so that's, that's where we are here. 72 elders placed them in 72 chambers. They all translated it exactly the same. So Philo of Alexandria writes that the number of scholars was chosen by selecting six scholars. It gets even better. They chose six scholars from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's not just 72 Jewish scholars. It's six Jewish scholars from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Amen. This is getting better and better. According to later rabbinic tradition, the Septuagint was given to Ptolemy two days before an annual feast. The letter of Aristeus is the source of all supposed evidence for the existence of the Septuagint. This letter was pseudepigraphical document entitled Letter of Aristeus to Philocrates. And what this means is uh, it, it describes false names of, of, of the authors of a work. So that would mean that Aristeus and Philocrates are not the real names of the people who supposedly wrote these letters. So it, today what we call it is a pen name. <laughs> we wouldn't say it's a or pseudepigraphical document. We would say it was written with a pen name. That means whoever wrote it didn't want you to know their name, and so they used a different name. One of my favorite writers, his name is Anthony Daniels, but he writes under the pen name of Theodore Dalrymple. <laughs> but everybody knows it's his pen name, so I don't know who he's hiding from. But um, this adds even more confusion to the situation because you're telling me that this man wrote this letter to his brother. Oh, by the way, this is not his name, so there's no way for you to look these people up and verify who they are. You can only rely on Philo, who apparently had the letter and told this story and brought about the, the, the Septuagint. Scholars today are uh, very readily recognize that this letter was not written by anyone named Aristeus at all. Now, you would, you would, like I understand that it's supposed to be you know, written in a pen name, but, but it even goes even further. They don't believe it's a real letter whatsoever. And this forgery was made for the express purpose of deceiving people about the origin of the Greek Old Testament. It is now believed the letter was written by Philo. So, as far as they can tell, Philo wrote this letter, 
And there's a good chance Philo made this translation, which would have been an incredible thing to, to do. Why wouldn't you say, I've translated the, the, the Old Testament into Greek? Here it is. <laughs> Instead, you make up this ridiculous story in the hopes that it will trick people into using it and, and have this legend behind it. Um, in an attempt to bring Hebrew and Greek, the, the Hebrew and Greek world together, that was his hope, is that it would, everybody would come hold hands and, and love each other, I guess. This document was printed in the Complutensian polyglot. That is what Stephanus relied on to create his, um, his Textus Receptus. Now, you'll find when we get to the making of the King James Bible, they didn't use Robert Stephanus' work. <laughs> they used Erasmus and they used Theodore Beza. They primarily relied on Theodore Beza and, um, because that's a bit of a mess. Now, Robert Stephanus' third edition was much larger. It was eight and a half inches by 13 inches. And this edition was also funded by royalty. He added information to the margins of this edition. Um, he added certain readings from the Complutensian Polyglot. Uh, he, rel- rel- he not only relied on it to make his text, he actually added notes in the margins from the Complutensian Polyglot so that he could show you where he got his information from. He added readings from 14 manuscripts. Both his third and fourth editions agreed closely with the fifth edition of Erasmus. But Erasmus had gained wide acceptance across Europe as the Word of God in Greek New Testament form. This seems to have restrained Stephanus from adopting the oddities of corrupt texts. So he was kind of in a hard spot. He's following Erasmus, which is a huge, huge task. And the work that Erasmus accomplished is gaining ground. People love it. They're very happy with it. So if you're going to put out a Greek New Testament after Erasmus, it can't be so widely different from Erasmus because you already have the Catholic Church who hates you for making this. And so the only people left to like you are the people who like Erasmus. But if you make something that disagrees with what Erasmus made, then everybody's going to hate you and nobody's going to read your, your document. And so it kind of restrained him and kept him from from varying too far from what Erasmus had already made, which would then make you think there was no reason for him to make it in the first place. Why why do this if you're just going to basically recreate what Erasmus already made? Uh, There was little difference um, between them. So uh, he was concerned that no one would read or use his work if he veered too far from the work of Erasmus. So... That's his four editions. All right. Now we have our good friend, Theodore Beza. From 1519 to 1605. Now he was successor to John Calvin. In Geneva, Switzerland. Now you have to remember, the Textus Receptus played a major role 
in pushing the, the Protestant Reformation forward. All right, so, you know, the, the textual receptus is, re, is released, and then um, Martin Luther nails his 95 essays <laughs> to the front door of the church in, in Wittenberg, and, and now the, the, the Protestant Reformation is in full, full blast, all right? John Calvin is considered a major leader in, in you know, one of the, the main reformers of the Catholic Church, which is interesting because basically all he did was create his own Catholic Church. <laughs> he just left the Catholic Church and basically went and did the same thing the Catholic Church was doing in Geneva, Switzerland. Now, it was a little different. It was maybe a little better, but it's not much better. And even worse than that, he, he convinced Bible-believing Christians to believe Calvinism, which is a devilish doctrine. That it's a philosophy. It's not a, it's not a doctrine. It's not biblical at all. So now Robert Stephanus worked from Geneva, and now we're going to learn of Theodore Beza, who also worked from Geneva. Uh, Beza was renowned for his ten editions of, of the Greek New Testament. So pe- people really highly respected his work. Nine editions were published during his lifetime. And one was published after his death. And that's the one we all were talking about before. It was published in 1633, long after he had died. This is the one that bore the name Textus Receptus. So it was long after he was dead. So... Erasmus, Greek New Testament, was never called the Textus Receptus. Stephanus, Greek New Testament, was never called the Textus Receptus. And Theodore Bezos was never called the Textus Receptus until long after he died in 1633. And then when the printer printed that, that edition, he titled it Textus Receptus, meaning received text. So if we, again, if we apply that to, on a technical level to people's arguments for the Textus Receptus being the Word of God, well, then you have to be talking about this one because it's the only one that was actually called the Textus Receptus. It was never called the Textus Receptus before that. It was just a Greek New Testament. It was Erasmus, first edition, fifth edition. Stephanus, fourth edition. You know, that's, that's all you had. Four of his Greek New Testaments were folios. Folio. This is a Folio. This is just a, a typical book form that we're, we're used to seeing. Remember, when, this, when printing is first happening, they're really trying to figure all this out. So this is early on in the, in the world of printing, and they're trying to, they're still learning how to put things together, how to sew things together, how to, how to do a lot of these things. And, 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 so it, and then it's, it didn't depend on how much money you had. You know, you, you have these... 1611 versions of the King James Bible. They're in this beautiful leather bound. They're big and they're, you know, back in America, I have an 1811 copy of a King James Bible. I mean, it's it's like this big. It's huge. And it's it's about this thick. It has the Apocrypha and everything. It's, it's 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 a very old Bible. For somebody to print that in the 1800s, you had a lot of money. 
Like you didn't just run down and say, could you print me, you know, a leather bound copy of the King James Bible? I mean, you had to have money for, for that kind of thing to happen. So, um, so these folio editions is, is, is kind of the, uh, it's kind of experimenting with formats and the way they, where they do things. Folios were typically larger with wide margins. And the one that I have back home was, it's large and it has wide margins. It's, it's a similar setup. Um, his other six editions were smaller reprints. They were more pocket-sized. So six were pocket-sized, four were folios. His folio editions contained his notes. They were placed under the actual text. All right, now we talked about that last night, right? So you would have, you know, they're... they're Printed text, and then immediately under it, there'd be the notes, you know, of what they, why they did what they did. It would be, you know, you'd be reading your Bible, and you read, you know, verse 1, and then right under verse 1 would be his explanation of why he rendered verse 1 the way he did. All right, so it, it, it the, and that's why when we get to the King James Bible, the king is like, don't put that stuff in my Bible. <laughs> He's like, I don't want it in there. You know, put it somewhere else. You know, publish a separate book. Uh, don't put it in the Bible. Uh, so, and, and I appreciate that because now I just have a clean copy of the Bible. The, you know, my Bibles generally have nothing in them. I don't want anything in it. I, I want the Bible. I don't want your cross-references. I don't want your, your notes. I don't want red letters. I don't want any of that stuff because that's all subject to the man's opinion who put them in there. And oftentimes they are crazy. <laughs> you start running cross-references and you're like, well, this has nothing to do with that. Why, why is this here? And, um, and so I don't want any of that. I want just a, if Lord helping me, just a clean, clear Bible that just has the Word of God. That's it. But that's my opinion. Some people want a study Bible that has all these notes in it that make no sense. But that's, that's up to you. <laughs> so as folio editions contain notes, Erasmus placed his at the end kind of like an appendix. An appendix. Remember we talked about that when, when Erasmus put his Greek New Testament together. At the end, he put his notes. He didn't put it into the text the way uh, Beza did in his folio editions. Uh, the dates for the folio editions are 1565, um, 1582, 1588, and 1598. We're getting real close to 1600. So these are, all, these are the folio editions. There does exist a printed version, uh, I believe it's a folio, from 1560. Uh, but there's not a lot of information about it for some reason. It currently exists in Chicago. It has the date on it, 1560. But we just don't know a whole lot about it. Theodore Beza notes that his... Now, but this, this is where... This is what leads people to think, you know, this has to be valid. Because Theodore Beza notes that his 1582 edition is third. So there, 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 there very well may have been a 1560. So, but there's just not, I guess there's not a lot of, enough historical information to piece together why this worked out this way. Um, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. We, we have, we either have 10 editions or we have 11 editions. Either way, 
they all exist. We know where they are. We know what they say. So um, we're going to stick with our narrative here because it doesn't damage anything in any way. This is not going to cause you to lose faith in the Word of God or something. You know, it's, there's just not enough information as to where this came from and why it's dated 1560. But in his 1582 edition, he did note this is the third edition. So there, there very well may have been this 1560 edition. I, just, I don't know how I got lost in the, in the shuffle, if that, if that makes sense. Um, so this would indicate the 1560 version was probably the first. In, his, in this third edition, Theodore Beza lists the materials he had available to him for the translation work. So what he used was he had in his possession, where, where is he at now? Where, where is he physically located? Geneva, Switzerland. So he had all the texts that belonged to Robert Stephanus. So he, he, he had those at his disposal to, to use. Um, he had a Syriac version. He had an Arabic New Testament. And in that Arabic New Testament, it also had Latin. A Latin New Testament. They were, it was another side-by-side uh, column-type situation. Um, now, just a few quick notes real quick. This, this Syriac version was published in 1569 by a man named Tremelius. What's interesting is he actually was a converted Jewish scholar. But he didn't get a chamber, and um, I don't think he met the king of Egypt. Now, the reason I tell you that is the Arabic and Latin version was put together by his son-in-law, whose name is Francis Junius. So he is his son-in-law. Son-in-law to Tremelius. All right, so... Beza also had two other manuscripts. D, which is Codex Bezai. Can anybody guess where the name came from? Theodore Beza. It was named after Theodore Beza. This document contained the four Gospels and Acts. All right, so it had the four Gospels and the book of Acts. Next, he had D2, which is Codex Clermont-Montanus. And the reason it has this name is it was found in Clermont, France. And it had all the Pauline... Epistles. All right. Theodore Beza took care to defend his position regarding the inclusion or exclusion of certain passages. He included Mark 16, 9 through 20, the last 12 verses of Mark. This is a big battle. I hope you understand why I repeat it over and over because it, there are, English Bibles exist where that passage is removed. 
It's completely gone. Bibles exist where Acts 8.37 is completely removed. Who, who has an NIV Bible on their phone or has access to it? Anybody? You do? On your phone or? You have an NIV. You do? Now, Miss Sarah, you read English really well, right? I would like for you to read Acts 8 and read verse 37 to me. It's 36 there? It's 36 there? Yes. It's 38 there? Yes. But 37 is not there. So, all right, now turn to 1 Timothy 3. And read verse 16. It'll be the last verse of chapter 3. Read, read it out loud. What, just read the first part of that, that section right there. Now, what is the meaning of this sea? So what they're telling you, this sea is to note that they made a change here. And so they're going to put a footnote at the bottom telling you they made a change. So read that sentence right there, that, that first sentence. He appeared in the body. Okay, now you can stop right there. That's, that's, that's all we need. So you already see that the wording is ridiculous. It's completely different. But they said, essentially, that great is the mystery of godliness, right? He appeared in the flesh. Who is he? R- raise your hand if you appeared in the flesh. Every one of you have appeared in the flesh. <laughs> So what's so mysterious and so great about that? If he, if someone appears in the flesh, now read in the King James Bible, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness, God was manifest in the flesh. That's a significant difference than he was manifest in the flesh. As if he was manifest in the flesh, well, I was manifest in the flesh, why is that a mystery? (laughs) You're manifest in the flesh. What's so special about that? So it, it's, it, this, this is the little, now why would you remove that? Why would you change that? How does it benefit you? How did it help? And, and so that's, that's what they did. Now, Theodore Beza kept that and he argued for it. He fought for it. He's like, I'm not, no, we're not changing that. Because it is a change. It's a departure from what the, te- the, the, the manuscripts that he has says. So in order for you to say he was manifest in the flesh, you're departing from it and you're going somewhere else. You're getting your information somewhere else. Now, the Alexandrian manuscripts might say that, but that's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Word of God says. He also defended his inclusion of 1 John 5, 7, which we've talked about extensively. He was also known for his Latin translation of the New Testament. His Latin was first published in 1556. It was republished more than 100 times. So they just kept using it and using it and using it and using it. So he, he was very good at what he did. He, he was highly spoken of, highly thought of. He did good work. It was good, dependable work. Now, his Textus Receptus is what the, the King James translators used to, to put together the New Testament 
for the King James Bible. Again, not exclusively, but that's what they relied upon. Now, real quick, we got three minutes left before we take a break. Let me give you another name you'll all enjoy. The Elzevir Brothers. The Elzevir Brothers. They were a family of Dutch printers. The, bo- the most notable, Bonaventure Elzevir. Bonaventure. See, that's not hard. He said it with no trouble at all. If you can say Rutabajisha, you can say Bonaventure. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was the most notable. He founded his own printing business in 1608. In 1624, he published his first Greek New Testament. That's going to sound familiar. In 1633, he printed his second. Who knows what that is? We already removed it. That was Beza's New Testament. And now listen to this. His text primarily followed the work of Theodore Beza, but also included Erasmus and some from the Complutensian Polyglot, as well as the Latin Vulgate. The preface to the second edition contained the phrase, for the first time, Textus Receptus. So this is the man that put these words to this document that everybody loves and knows nothing about. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. You can learn more about our ministry by visiting www.plenteousredemption.com. You can hear more Plenteous Redemption podcast audio at www.plenteousredemption.media. Please comment below if this podcast has been a help to you. Also, inform us of future topics that would interest you. Thank you again for listening to the Plenteous Redemption podcast.